2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright's. Thank you for listening. We'll spend this hour with artists who express themselves in two different forms. Doug Pisick is an Atlanta-based master woodworker. He creates sculpture. Wall art, turnings, and decorative boxes. His most recent works are in response to the COVID 19 pandemic. Later this hour, he'll talk about the body of work he calls Art for Our Unusual Times. Christopher Isherwood was a celebrated 20th-century author best known for his Berlin stories, which became the basis of the musical Cabaret. The opening of Isherwood's Berlin stories reads, I am a camera with its shutter open, quite passive recording, not thinking. The words, I am a camera, could apply to the life of photographer Annie Leibovitz, though she is never passive and always thinking. If you were to close your eyes and picture John Lennon, Queen Elizabeth, Serena Williams, or just about any celebrity or head of state from the last 50 years, chances are you'd conjure an image that was shot by Annie Leibovitz. Leibovitz stopped by our studios during a book tour a few years back. We spoke about her career, her life, and her evolution as
0: an artist. Photography was my life. Everything was so interesting. Every single, you know, situation you walked into or was different and interesting and 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 and, and really amazing. Um, I, I tell you, it was really, it's, it's so interesting. You're bringing that up because um, what happened is, you know, David Hockney came along with his, um, you know, his studies on perspective and uh, you know his photo montages where. Um, there were many photographs, and, and it was really sort of groundbreaking to me because it was really how the eye sees. The eye doesn't just see in a rectangle or a square; it sees a little to the right, and a little to the left, <laughs> and you you know you see more p- peripheral. And you know, I, I used to you know sort of look peripherally out of. Besides, you know, when things were going on all the time to make sure I was getting something. But you could never get everything into that frame. It was really, really, really hard. Um, I for, for two or three years, I actually took photographs inspired by Hockney. I took photographs. To, I shot to the left and I shot to the right. <laughs> and I put them together. And it was quite fascinating to, like, broaden um, your vision like that. Of course, it was – useless for spontaneity you know because <laughs> something would be happening in the left frame and something would be happening in the right frame and they never quite went together but so I stopped doing that but um no I just think it's um I have to I, I can't help but think of um, what you're asking me literally uh, because um, the frame you know I admired as a as a young person Robert Frank and Cartier brazan who used the rectangle to you know they were geniuses they they the 35 millimeter, they composed in that rectangle. And I, I try so hard to do the decisive moment, you know, that the that, Tardier that brazon talked about. And I was just useless at it. I mean, I I, I really don't know if I believe in the decisive <laughs> moment, for you know, for myself anyway, because life is more like uh, a movie. You know, there's more like things are going on, like all the time. And I, I it's always been hard for me to stop into a single image but that is where I love my magazine work because I love I love the series I love you know five or six seven photographs to tell a story I mean I I understand you know I, I came to terms with with creating um, a single image uh, you know primarily for those covers of Rolling Stone early on believe it or not at the um, at the end of the 70s being asked by Life magazine to do a series of of poets, you know, Tess Gallagher and Robert Penn Warren, and uh, I started to think about how I could photograph a portrait of them and really emulate their their work, their you know, how could I see their poetry in in these photographs? Oh, anyway, here's the bottom line. Photography is big. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> it's immense. It's it's broad. It, it has so many different ways you can use it and I I really do think of myself as uh, a conceptual artist using photography now. You know, it's really like I, I'm not too sure after doing this for so long that I, I'm one kind of photographer.
2: Yeah. When <laughs> you mention Pen Warren, you photographed him um, and wrote that he had been writing a lot about death. Mm-hmm. And you have him shirtless mm-hmm. and just appearing gaunt and almost raw mm-hmm. i think you did capture the moment
0: i know that's that's very nice um do you know i i'm not too sure um i don't think anyone else i really f- felt like no one else e- ever understood the picture because it looked like a man with no shirt on you know sitting on a bed and um and it really was about um and he was so so at peace. I mean, he was so. Um, it, it it was it was something that one could only hope when it's time <laughs> for oneself that that one would feel that much uh, at ease and at peace. Actually, you know what? I personally love getting older because I think um, that is sort of falling into place. How about you? I mean, I'm loving it, aren't you? I'm I mean, loving what, it. No one talks about it enough.
2: Well, you know, the muscle tone, <laughs> I, I don't wouldn't mind. What I know I used I'm wearing to. my fat pants today. It's yeah, like, <laughs> but um,
0: yeah. yes, it's yeah. it's liberating. It's quite interesting. I mean, it's really um you kind of know what you're doing doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good, you know, every, every day or whatever, but it's it's just wonderful to know what you're doing and um and and you slow down and it's, it's feels so natural. It's, it's not, um, you know, you're not running to any place anymore, you know. Um, I know that maybe that doesn't sound great to some people, but I, I, I'm so, um,
2: you are at peace and you have three terrific kids, and <laughs> that's they the keep only you part. That's, that's
0: the only part I didn't quite, quite figure out right. 100%. Oh, well. no, you no, have I them. love, I love my, oh, god, I love my girls. I mean, I love them. Um, it's just it does make you want to be around longer, you know. That's the only uh, little little hiccup, uh, you know. Having done it late in my life, you know, um,
2: there's no predicting. I mean, look at Cartier Bresson. Wasn't well, <laughs> he ninety five, ninety nine?
0: That there is a funny riff among photographers that you know, it, as a profession, <laughs> there's a lot of longevity in it, you know, <laughs> Lartigue and. Uh, you know, but, so there uh, you go. You picked the right. I don't know, but then you have those Rolling Stone years that, like, sort of <laughs> took. I think subtracted a few they years. They are <laughs> behind you, Annie. I know, but they, they, they certainly took a lot out of. It took a lot out of me. I mean, listen. You know, had an extraordinary uh, time. It launched um, your career. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know, you have to believed that I had no idea I had a career. I mean, I was really just working and 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 I really worked that first book 1970 1990 1990 was the first time I just I went out. So I was working for almost 20 years and and I went out um to talk about the book and it was the first time that I realized that people were looking at my work. I mean, I I didn't I, I was so I was so engaged in my work. I I I was in a vacuum. I had no. I really had no idea that people, um, you know, were that aware of my work.
2: And you said that you thought of yourself as a photojournalist rather mm-hmm. than a photographer because the narrative was so important. When did you transition to photographer, or do you still think of yourself as well, a no. storyteller?
0: I no, I, I I of course one would love to be able to tell a story. Um, I I don't know if it's fair to try to tell a story in, in one photograph, though. Um, so um, that's you know why I appreciate the the photo story. I still long. I th- I, th- I still think we need. Um, you know what Life Magazine was doing for us, which were, were the, you had the photo story. Actually, I'm seeing it now. It's quite an interesting time. The New York Times, you know, and the Washington Post. I mean, they are running picture stories, and they are they are our new magazines. They really are. I mean, um, the New York Times uh, on usually on Sundays they take several pages in the back of the first section, and they run these kind of Riveting photojournalistic journal- photo stories, uh, and they give them you know a lot of space. You know, not small. They, you know, they take over. Uh, you know, they go over the page. I mean, they over over the two pages. Um, it, I'm just I'm just riveted um, with what I'm seeing journalistically today. I, it's so powerful to me. I, I'm so ooh, really uh, the, re- that's the best photography we have right now is our journalism. I mean, I have come from another world, but I still love seeing. Um, you know get, running to the to the to the back door and getting the paper and 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 uh love seeing the the photographs in 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 the paper and I love seeing um how the the front page is laid out you know and where they where they when they put something below the fold and <laughs> um you know photography's photography's certainly not going away and neither is uh um it's stronger than ever and um You know how we see it. I mean, it's it's hard because it does look really good on the screen. I mean, it really does look good on the screen, and to try to print it is is, the digital is 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 really um, you know a a little difficult, and it's a learning curve. But we're gonna get there. We'll get there. I love books. I mean, I've always books are so important to me. (laughs) I love that in talking about
2: your portrait of. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as the blues brothers, you reveal that painting them blue was a bold move they weren't entirely on board with. In fact, Belushi walked out and you said he didn't talk to you for six months after That's right. that. That's right. And and you go on to write that you did a lot of that kind of thing when you were young and cocky, but you wouldn't even know
0: how to do it now. Mm. It's not so much that I wouldn't know how to do it now; as I, I I think it has has something to do with being older. I don't think that um th- that's the kind of photograph. You know, I, I I would I would think about taking. Not that I'm not interested in conceptual work. Um, uh, you know, I just did this series for Vandy Fair on uh, the Hall of Fame, and uh, you know, Hannah Gadsby. Um, we we took a photograph that um, you know, the comedian—I um, I don't know—I can't even call her a comedian. She's just a, a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, but she sent me a, a, um, a, fo- a, a photograph of um, a copy of um, uh, Picasso's uh, painting of Gertrude Stein as as as, as a as a reference idea because I was sending her we were emailing back and forth and um, so we kind of I so I used that portrait of Picasso's um, you know p- portrait of Gertrude Stein as a kind of a, a reference picture for photographing Hannah but uh, it, it had a lot more to um, as an idea for Hannah um, I don't know if you you know her work at I all. am
2: familiar with her and I agree she's brilliant <laughs> and Heartbreaking and funny. I mean, it's extraordinary.
0: I think what was interesting about the painting, because uh, I was thinking that I would, I was going to go into that sitting um, with her, a little bit, not not exactly like a Diane Arbus, but you know, just very straightforward. You know, like a very very straight, like an August Sander, a very very straightforward, uh, you know, image. And um, and then she sent me the painting, and I realized. What she was talking about was the integrity in um, in Gertrude Stein, you know, sitting there. That you know that, that there was something very, you know, and, and you know the story is that Gertrude Stein, of course, didn't like the painting at first when um, when it was done, and then Picasso said, you know, like wait twenty years, you know, you're <laughs> going to like it. So um, talk
2: about young and cocky. <laughs> yeah. Stutz Terkel came to my mind when. I thought about the title of your book, At Work. And though your subjects aren't a tribute to workers, the title suggests a sort of utilitarianism. Mm. Is that how you think of your work, Annie? Less an artist and more a worker?
0: Well, you know, when I did At Work... um, you know i was always enamored with Ansel adams uh he he did a book called examples and he had uh taken 40 of his photographs and uh and, and deconstructed them they were case studies of of how he'd, he made the photographs and um you know being around as long as i have been around i you know i would you know be besieged or talked to by young photographers about how i did my pictures and i thought you know i think it's time to maybe write about um talk about, you know, the making of some of these photographs. And I thought maybe I was going to have 10 photographs, you know, and and it turned out to be over 100 photographs in in this book. But it was really done as a a primer for young photographers. (laughs) What I tried to explain is that there's just no um, secret way or magic way to do your work. That it's it's going to be work, you know, and that, you know, you just – you have to do it. I mean, it's just, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no mad, magic or secret. You, it's just work. It's just work. So that's why the title. If you are just joining us,
2: we're listening to a conversation with photographer Annie Leibovitz. We'll return after a short break here on WABE Atlanta. We're back with City Lights on WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're revisiting a conversation with the photographer Annie Leibovitz. Among the many famous photographs she's captured, one of her best-known first ran on the cover of Rolling Stone. The photo was of John Lennon, nude, lying next to Yoko Ono. It was taken just hours before Lennon was killed by a gunman in New York on December 8, 1980.
0: That's another interesting thing about photography is, is that the, the image how, you know, it, it changes. It, it it can change after someone dies or, or leaves uh, leaves you. Um, it has a no, it has a different meaning. A different meaning, as true, I guess, with John and Yoko as well.
2: I was hoping to ask you about <laughs> that, Annie, because there's this heart achingly beautiful story attached to it. And would you talk about how the meaning of that photo changed? After you took the picture?
0: Well, I had gone to photograph um, John for a cover of of Rolling Stone, and I was actually told as I was, you know, basically going out the door that, um, you know, Jan Jan Winter didn't want a a photograph of of Yoko. He just wanted um, uh, a a portrait of John for the cover.
2: This is the editor of
0: of, of Rolling Stone. Of Rolling Stone. um, and uh, you know, I knew John. I mean, I didn't know him, but I, you know, I've known him over ten years. I had photographed him earlier for 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 Rolling Stone. Um, so it was ten years. I think this photograph is almost ten years in the making. They had just come out with an album called Double Fantasy, and they're kissing on the cover. So I was very, I personally was very enamored with that. I loved the idea of romance, you know, and and uh, I loved the idea of their their relationship. But I walked into the apartment. The apartment in the Dakota, and I told John that, um, you know, actually, no, actually I didn't say it. I walked into the, into the apartment, and and he he came up and he said, you know, we have to have Yoko in the picture. Yoko has to be on the cover with me. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, we got to do something really good, you know. So, um, and I told him about my idea of, of them embracing each other, and um, and I I imagined they were both going to be nude. And uh, because it wasn't unusual, John and Yoko were nude. Um, And um, at the last minute, Yoko didn't want to take, you know, was willing to take her her shirt off, but not her pants. And so I said, well, why don't you leave everything on? And then so John, um, you know, curled up next to her. And I took a couple of Polaroids and pulled it. Pull the Polaroids, and, and John said, "Oh, oh, this, this is our relationship. This, this is us." And um, so I took just a few frames, really, and then and then left uh, the apartment. And I was maybe going to meet up with them later at the at the recording studio. They were going out, and then Jan Winner himself actually called me in the evening and said, "Someone who matched uh, John's description was taken you know, to the hospital. Uh, he was shot." and and then, um, you know, I spent the rest of the night up at the hospital, you know, waiting to hear. Um, but it, it, yes, it's here's a photograph that that was taken with one idea in mind. And um, and then John is killed. And um, and it has another, uh, It you know, I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. But I mean, because I don't want to describe it necessarily. You may want to do that. Um, but um, it, it takes on other, an, other meaning. Last kiss. A, a goodbye, yes, mm. a goodbye. Jan, of course, ran it on the cover.
2: <laughs> Annie, you write that the most important thing a young photographer can do is learn how to see. Mm. How did you learn that lesson?
0: Again, just doing it over you know taking pictures and going to, back to the dark room and developing the film and printing and looking um, I mean I was very lucky cuz I had the dark room and I don't I actually don't know how young photographers can, can have that you know experience because it was so beautiful to go into a dark room and you know the lights be off and you see you know, the images come up in the in, in the in the tray and in, in the chemicals. And it's it magic. Like it, it, that was magic. It really was magic. It, and and you know, as I as I became um, more busy, it became harder and harder for me to go back into the dark room. I used to try to get into the dark room once a year, but it, um, it, it sort of you know fell by the wayside. But um, so, how do you see? Um, you see by. Continuing to take pictures and looking at what you do—I mean, I was very lucky. Also, I had Bea Feitler; he was a great art director. Um, you know that sort of mentored me, and, and she told told me I had to edit my work. You know that I had to learn how to edit my work, and I, I didn't really—you know—we just go and we take pictures and pictures and pictures. But you know, you have to stop. <laughs> and you, have to edit you have to and it took me years to understand what was a good picture and what was not a good picture and don't ask me what a good picture is I don't <laughs> but um, but that's what the books are you see the books are to me you know 1970 1990 was the the first time I stopped and looked at my work and then um, 1990 to 2005 were the years I you know was with Susan Sontag and that was Photographer's Life and that was an edit. Um,
2: These are memoirs.
0: When I called Fiden and said, I want to do this book, um, I had this idea. I knew what the ending was going to be and it was going to be, you know, the last picture I was going to take for the book was going to be Hillary Clinton in the White House. (laughs) And and then um, that didn't happen. And I... Floundered actually, I, I qualified and said I can't do the book. I don't have an ending, and uh, so th- you see at the end of the end of this book, me kind of trying to figure out what an ending could be. Uh, but you know, we like everyone else. I've picked myself up, and we've picked ourselves up, and making our way, as you say.
2: <laughs> you were the first American to be asked by Buckingham Palace to make an official portrait of the queen.
0: Big damn deal. Big damn deal. But you, I, I did find out finally because, you know, I went back um, to do another sitting with the queen for her 90th birthday. So I had, you know, I, have you know, pulled myself together and I asked the press office. I said, why did the queen ask me, you know, to take her picture, you know, the first time. And the press office uh, officer told me, she said, well, Annie, you, you wrote her a letter and asked her if, if she would sit for a picture. This was like when I was working on the women's project with Susan Sontag in 1999. And we thought maybe the book was going to be about um, maybe women more from a, you know around the world. And I did send her a letter. It was five Five to ten years earlier, I had written her this letter asking if I could take her picture. So it's just a nice little story for young young photographers. If they they want to take someone's picture, they send them a letter. Eventually, (laughs) that may happen. Yeah, but now
2: they'd send an email. Who knows if it would reach the Queen? That's That's
0: true. Well,
2: here's this huge tribute to you and your work. And while you had to put up with some... Absurd demands. Ultimately, she won you over. Oh, she was, she was,
0: she was, she was, she was fantastic. She was, she was, she was incredible. I mean, um, she. Um, if you can imagine, she was wearing seventy-five pounds of robes, and um, I also found out later that um, that. We think we interrupted her favorite daytime TV show. <laughs> so so those was the other. Tell was us she, what it was. No, I don't know what it was. But but in any case, she, she does watch TV a lot. But I, I, <laughs> the and, price and, 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 is right. Have you have, have you watched The Crown? By the way, yes. I mean, I I wish I had seen that before I photographed her because I I sort of believe believe in it in some way. What well, was so sweet about the the second time I went um, to to take a. Her portrait for her 90th birthday, because what was so charming is that um, the ideas for the, you know, for that second time were her ideas, and 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 it was so sweet. She wanted to be photographed with Princess Anne, she wanted um, to be photographed with her dogs, and she wanted, uh, you know, to be photographed with her grandchildren. So she didn't say anything about Prince Charles or Prince Philip. <laughs> it was like. <laughs> talk about nudnex <laughs> and we did that we did we did those three pictures for her that's what she wanted it was
2: i loved your takeaway what you write about the very end of the photo session what struck you so powerfully you wrote about duty
0: well we and we know more about that now because we, there's been a lot more talked about, you know, about that. But uh, at, at that time, I, I was new to me to understand her. You know, um, I mean, when I did my research for her, she was probably the most photographed person in the world. You know, I I, I mean, there was so much material, you know, to look at over all all those all those years. But you no, know, she definitely, and that. That sitting was was you know um, was was sort of talked about a lot because um, the BBC had had um, portrayed it as if she had walked out of the sitting. Quite the opposite, she had walked into the sitting, <laughs> very very determined, and um, you know she she was a live one. She was very feisty, and it's like she, she I loved it. I, I mean I remember the sitting was over, and I told the press press officer I said, "Oh my God." I, you know, she, the queen was incredible. Um, but, no, she has such – that's why she was so angry is that she would never have walked out. You know, of, of, She just has such a, a strong sense of, of duty in what she's doing. And she didn't stop until I said thank you very much. She did not, you know, say it's over. She was like – she was waiting, you know, uh, and, until I said, you know, thank you.
2: The queen the qu- was waiting for your command, well, I mean, Annie. I we had a
0: certain amount of time, you know, <laughs> and I kept it within that time. And and then, you know,
2: and your little girl <laughs> and Sarah got to curtsy for her.
0: She did. Yes. Do you have
2: photos of that?
0: I, I don't have photographs of that, but um, I think it's in that BBC <laughs> documentary. <laughs> okay, <laughs> she'll she'll let they you. They got know to her. they got to meet her again this the second time uh, we photographed
2: with the advent of instagram and the ubiquity of selfies and telephones do you think that's something good for photography or does it annoy you
0: well we're, we're talking about two different things well one is you know the instagram account which is is um I have never crossed over my my um my my girls do have their own um, you know, friend, friend chats. You know, um, but I have never. I've always had a place to place my photographs, so I never used Instagram myself. Um, but I, I, you cannot under underestimate the convenience of having, you know, a phone in your pocket, a, 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 a camera in your pocket. It is just just accessible and 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 available, and you know that is really. Um, you know the difference between taking the photograph and not taking the photograph, and um, I'm a big advocate of of, of the, um, the the cell phone. I think cell phone um, uh, camera. Um, I, I I just think it's it's wonderful, and I love it for my children. I, I first of all, I really love photography so much. The fact that my children can take pictures of their friends and you know things that are going on in their lives, and they can sort of um, see themselves and and and. Come to terms with with who they are through through imagery like that. I, I and then I just think again, I photography is so broad and big it has, there's room for all of this, you know there's no reason to say um, you know the, the, there can't be all these kinds of photographs. you know I, I remember um, I've said this before, but you know going in to, to see, uh, Vanessa Redgrave backstage and she pulls out her, her phone and she shows me her grandchildren. So, you know, I I I think um I I I love the um you know the um the camera phone. I think it's great for everyone. It's, it's very it's very democratic. I love it. <laughs> well,
2: I wish you the longevity of Cartier-Bresson <laughs> and for so, my children's
0: sake, thank you. <laughs> you know what? Here's the other thing. I love what I do. I love what I do. And I am committed to it. And um, it's so interesting. History just uh, takes over. You know, you're you just – you, the body of work is, is so interesting to me. I can stand outside of it. And um, it only gets, you know, you know more, more interesting. So, I
2: adore the photo
0: of your mom. So I, I talk about this this photograph of my mom when um I I'm you know, I'm asked about my favorite favorite photograph and one of the reasons I talk about it is because it uh it sort of raised the bar. I mean I, I can't uh, achieve that kind of intimacy in in my day-to-day work, you know, that, that that I do. It's really your family and your friends where you have that kind of very special um, you know, work. Um and this was done for the women's project um, with, with Susan Sontag in, for, for 1999. Um, but um, it, it was it was a diff- difficult sitting because my mother wanted um, my mother looked uncomfortable at first, and um, and I asked her what was wrong, and she said, "Well, I I don't want to look old." And how how do mothers know? They have that intu- intuition. I don't know what it is, but I I was. I wanted to make sure my mother looked her age. You know, I I was interested in that, and uh, and um, but what struck me the most about this photograph, after was all was said and done, is I realized when when I look at my mom in this photograph, I I really feel like um, there's no camera there. You know, there's she really is looking at me, and I I, I remember the women's show in uh, hanging at the Corcoran in Washington D.C. and and someone said to me, "You know, your mother really loves you." <laughs> and I'm looking at it, and I said, "No, no, no." home. I'm looking. At her. I'm looking at her and I said, "You're right. She really does love me."
2: <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Validation okay. on the wall.
0: It's, it's just as powerful a photo as any Yeah, I I use it as an example. Um, really. Um, I mean, I think my favorite portraits of all time are are Stiglitz's photographs of um, George O'Keefe. They're just, they make me so weak. I mean, because, you know, they were married. They were in love. She was a great uh, muse. She loved, you know, she, she loved to, to sit for him. And uh, he was a great photographer. And uh, what a great combination. And those photographs are just extraordinary. So it's that... Intimacy, I mean, you see it in Sally Mann's pictures of her children. That work is only there, there. You know, I mean, that's only in in that kind of intimacy. Photographer Annie Leibovitz
2: talking about her book, Portraits, 2005 through 2016. There's more of City Lights Ahead on WABE Atlanta. Marietta-based artist Doug Pisick is classified as a master woodworker from the Woodworkers' Guild of Georgia. He has received numerous awards in national juried exhibitions, and his works can be found across the U.S., in European and Israeli collections. He joins us now via Zoom. Doug, welcome back to City Lights.
1: Oh, it's such an honor to be back. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Your latest series is called Art for Our Unusual Times. What was the inspiration?
1: Oh, it's all the unusual things that we're all going through now as we're adapting to the current COVID pandemic it's obviously been quite a bit of a challenge for literally everybody. And it's one of the rare times as an artist I've actually felt truly inspired to create something based on what was happening around me. And I created a series, which is currently three key pieces, which tie in on our attack on the virus, and also the virus's impact to our body, and our impact to our psyche or our mind. It's just something that's been running through my head, and I had to get it out in physical form.
2: How long did it take you to first envision and then create these three pieces?
1: Oh, it's interesting. Several months back, as I was just hearing and thinking about how we were trying to come up with viruses and attack you know, what, what we have going on around us, I came up with an inspiration for my first piece, which is called The Cure. And that's our attack on the virus. And the the inspiration for that was pretty much something I, I almost woke up and just said, I just saw a vision. And the vision was like a hammer slamming down and destroying the virus, which is a physical representation of what this art is. It's an actual spherical view of a virus with, the little nodules coming out of it. And and I created what looks exactly like a steel hammer, an iron hammer, pounding down and cracking it open. And I had the vision of it, but to physically make it was something that was uh, very therapeutic, exciting, and and I felt hopeful and inspirational for others, which is why I put this virtual exhibition together.
2: You mentioned that the piece... Is created entirely out of wood, including the hammer, or is the hammer metal?
1: It's including the hammer. It's actually, I had this large handheld iron small miniature sledge, and that was my model. But the hammer itself is a hundred percent. The hammer head is made out of maple and is cut to look exactly like a hammerhead, and then it has an oak handle which looks just like a regular tool handle. And I but I carved all of it myself with all my own tools.
2: So you craft by carving the individual parts. It it's not as a sculptor would mold clay or chisel from marble.
1: Correct. It's actually very. uh, It's very very unique. With um, when you work with materials such as wood, and others as well, but with wood in particular, which I work quite a bit with, it's often, often depend what you're trying to make. It's actually appropriate to make things in sections and pieces. So for this, the hammer head was a single piece. The hammer handle was a single piece. The sphere was a single piece. And there's approximately twenty of these, uh, these, these burl nodules that are wrapped around the piece are all individually done. The trick is to figure out how to design it in advance so that when you put it all together, it looks seamless. And in this case, somewhat realistic with the way it was all pulled together. It's, I know it's difficult over the radio, but I do find that those that have seen it have all felt like it's been visually pops as to exactly What's been represented, and I'm actually very fortunate. The particular piece we're talking about now is actually shown in the current, um, the current edition of Find Art Connoisseur magazine.
2: Mm. Now, you have another piece in this series called "Thoughts in Isolation," and I read that you created a social media campaign asking your followers to share one word thoughts about their experiences in isolation due to the pandemic. What were some of the words you received?
1: Uh, There were so many that had come back to me. I'd received over a hundred words of thoughts people had, everything ranging from fear to anger to the word vote. You know, which means which is so sad that people are, are thinking of this from political aspect as well as the physical aspect, or the mental aspect, because this pandemic is hitting everybody from every angle and every direction. What I wanted to do was to narrow it down to just nineteen words. COVID nineteen, you know, obviously the symbolism there. I wanted to put as much symbolism into it as I could and I picked 19 key words, which kind of symbolized a lot of what everyone had. It was everything from hope to fear, to solitude, to pensive, and even have baking and booze are words that have shown up as well. There's so much to the reason there's no more flour on the shelves. And apparently booze has been a big factor as, as well for some individuals for the response. I just thought they were very appropriate, not only because of the thoughts people are having, but also, you know, the humorous aspect as well.
2: Did you receive a lot of repetitions of words? Did that help you narrow things down?
1: Yeah. Interestingly, there were some. There were a lot of synonyms. Um, you know, the words lonely and loneliness had shown up, you know, often, which, which is sad but critically important to be thinking about. And I picked ones that just really stood out that, that were very much um, uh, the basis, I think, that covered what helps with everyone. And what's interesting about this piece as well is that although it's talking about isolation, I felt it was important to reach out to the community to get the input. I wanted to get everyone's input. So in a way, this piece called Thoughts in Isolation was created in a non-isolated social media environment. And and this piece is totally different looking than the uh, the first piece we talked about, The Cure. And that this one is made with about 50 intersecting, um, shifting wooden rods and these rods are make a mishmash. So that looks, for me, it envisions thoughts racing through somebody's mind. And the thoughts themselves make up 19 of the rods and they pop out. They're made out of a much different colored wood than the rest. So when you look at it, you can see how these thoughts are basically um, randomly and sporadically shooting through someone's mind along all the other thoughts that might be happening with them. It's a very dynamic piece. You can almost feel like you can see the synapses shooting through your head when you look at a piece like this.
2: The third piece is Angel Breath, which has a poetic name. It's also sad to view this.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to have the sadness as well as the hope and the happiness. It's a combination piece. definitely sadness to it this is our body's response is what this one represents and also very different than the others this one was inspired by an earlier piece i had done which was a heart and lung sculpture which i was commissioned to make for a pulmonologist not surprisingly but this particular one is a bit different it is it says it does look like a pair of lungs which are encapsulating a heart. The heart though is more like a Valentine heart as opposed to a human heart. But when you look at it, there's a hole in the center of the heart, which as I said, it's like it's having that feeling of a hole in your heart due to the loss of life and the attack and the, that people are having. Obviously the lungs play, are, are critically important in, in what we think of when we think about our, what this virus is doing to us. But when people look at it, some see lungs and some see what looks like angel wings. Amazingly, the lungs have that look to them. And I did shape them a little more elongated to have a bit more of that feeling. And I feel that it's very important um, to have a piece that, that you look at, it shows love, but also shows the impact that it's having on us as a society and as individuals.
2: Doug, clearly you've been acting on your inspiration, having created these complex and thoughtful pieces. How has it been for you as an artist during COVID 19, aside from creating these pieces in response to the disease?
1: I, I'm glad you asked. You know, a lot of people aren't actually talking, except for you, of course, aren't talking about the art community uh, and what's happening uh, to, to them. Uh, one of the galleries that was showing my work has shut the doors. Uh, it's very difficult for all businesses, obviously, with the impacts. And a lot of, a lot of galleries and museums have put together virtual exhibitions. And for example, my, what we're talking about now is a virtual exhibition I put on my website. So people can come and visit these three pieces. and actually videos of all three pieces so people can see them in three dimensions and, and try to actually vision them being there in front of them. And it has been difficult though in general because people have a harder time going and seeing the works. It's not just about the artists, it's about the people that appreciate the art. Both are suffering in a different way but for those of us that are able to get virtual exhibitions out there and be able to share our works, no matter what they are, um, right now is about all we have going for us, and we really appreciate being able to do that in today's times. And uh, and it, although it's been difficult, it's also I've also been very very grateful that I've had the opportunity to be thinking of new ways of sharing the work that I create, which I had not thought about before.
2: Indeed. And for what consolation it may be, and I realize it could feel small, visual artists have the advantage of being in galleries or museums where people can social distance, And um, there can be timed ticketed admission, whereas symphony orchestras, theaters are facing tremendous challenges with how and when they can return to work.
1: It is very, very true. What, one thing I am grateful for, I've actually just entered a new gallery in uh, in Marietta, the Robert Kent Gallery, who is open as well. and very careful about how many people can come in for viewing the arts. But I, not um, everyone knows, that I'm also affiliated with a wonderful dance company called uh, Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, who I know you're aware of. And we had to cancel all of our performances, our live performances, but instead we're currently creating dance movies and films that people will still be able to enjoy and see. It's different, but it's still a way of being able to share. Uh, Symphony orchestras, some of them are showing online as well. However, you're right, there is nothing, nothing that matches being able to see, Performing arts in person to experience it and to experience uh, the visual arts as well, and I'm grateful for the fact that we can do this today. But at the same time, I'm so looking forward to going out and seeing these things in person as well and being able to experience the joy that you get for as a uh, as a group as a society for these performances.
2: Marietta-based artist and woodworker Doug Pisick, His latest series is called Art for Our Unusual Times. For more information on how to check out his virtual exhibition, go to our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about High Visibility, a group exhibition of photographers featuring several Atlanta LGBTQ artists. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org citylights City Lights, and City Lights is now a podcast. Check it out wherever you subscribe. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.